What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Welcome to this week's episode of The Cutting Room. I'm your host, Gordon Burkell. This week is the first part of my interview with Michael Miller, editor of Ghost World, Swing Kids, and Raising Arizona. But first, a word from the Manhattan Edit Workshop and Josh After for helping the American cinema editors put on Edit Fest New York. Hey, this is Josh from Manhattan Edit Workshop, here to remind you that on June 11th and 12th, American Cinema Editors brings Edit Fest back to New York at the DGA Theater. We have some great panelists lined up for the event, including the editors of Avatar, Precious, The Blind Side, Goodfellas, The Cove, Manhattan, Sixth Sense, The Wrestler, Sex and the City 2, and tons more. So please make sure to sign up at www.editfestny.com, and I hope to see you there. Also keep in mind, next week, Art of the Guillotine and the Cutting Room will be in New York for Edit Fest. Now, back to the show. Michael Miller cut Swing Kids, Stigmata, Ghost World, and Raising Arizona, among many other great films. We met in LA over a cup of coffee to chat about his work. For those out there listening, we jump right into our discussion about Ghost World. I think one of the contributions that I made to that film, and Carol, you know, Carol did more work or worked on it longer probably than I did, but because the studio, more than Terry Zweigoff was concerned about the film's darkness and and really how potentially unlikable Sora Birch's character and Scarlett Johansson's character were, I tried to I tried to apply a lesson I learned from watching The Graduate a zillion times. And that is wherever possible. Wherever there were singles and clean point of view shots, use them so that we were telling the story of these very flawed characters from the point of view of the characters. Because if a, if a viewer is that character, it becomes much more difficult for the viewer to make a negative assessment of the character. And the reason I learned that while watching The Graduate is Benjamin Braddock is an extremely unattractive character. I mean, he's utterly contemptuous of his parents. He's utterly contemptuous of their friends. He's got nothing going on in his life except an affair with his parents' friend's mother. And then he thinks, you know, he can walk away from that because he has a crush on the daughter with no consequences. He's extremely unattractive, but you know, what happens at Ben's birthday party? He walks out with the scuba mask and the entire scene is from his point of view. And from there on, you are Ben in that story. Um, and so you're not saying, oh, what a lazy, slothful guy you're going. I mean, damn, man, I love Catherine Ross too. And, and whatever you do to kind of make it forgiving. I, I believe even that great scene where with Buck Henry where he gets a room I think you're on singles of Buck you know it may not be actually but at any rate I tried to do that in Ghost World I tried to make as much as I could be from the character's point of view so that when they're making fun of the paraplegic it's I'm making fun you know I the viewer am making fun of her it's not something which objectively you'd view somewhat differently. I was actually going to ask you about that specific moment 
and the way you cut it was we start the film and it's like close up on her and then when she's like it's like I just got my training wheels off or I think it's a line or something similar to that and then you cut to this wide shot did you use that a lot throughout the film as like a reveal for the humor or we tried to and I have to say also speaking of that scene I'll, and I'll come back to your question in a second I mean the script of course should be taking care of that for you and it does I mean in the script Dan wrote that essentially this is a drunk driving accident and she's responsible I mean how sorry are we supposed to feel really uh, and of course sorry for anybody who suffered a terrible injury but you know it's not like it's not like she was a victim you know a, a blameless victim but yeah I think you know that's always an interesting issue when where is the punchline I mean and I was saying this yesterday you know the the structure seems very simple it's and you have to respect it, but you also have to find it. And that is set up payoff. And so, you know, there I think very clearly the setup is training wheels. Training wheels? Payoff. <laughs> See the rig, you know. Now, you also do that though in some of the dramatic scenes. So was there a conscious decision for that to sort of reveal certain elements? You know, I, I'm, I'm going to answer the question in an oblique sort of way. I think. Yes, but I, I'd be hard-pressed, honestly hard-pressed to tell you whether that was Terry Zweigoff, Carol, or me. And I, I think in a cutting room that's functioning ideally, you'll never remember who had the idea. Because we all have egos. And it's all, you know, if you can create an environment where all ideas are welcome, no one's ever going to say, boy, that was dumb. And at the same time, no one's going to feel like they were one-upped or... And, and I will say this on the record. I, Ralph Rosenblum wrote one of the great books about editing, but he made a huge mistake in that book, which is to take credit for too damn much. Partly because after many, many years of editing, I feel can't possibly be true. Can't possibly be true that the great, great Sidney Lumet didn't have any of his own ideas, that Billy Friedkin didn't have any ideas on his own film, and certainly having worked with Woody, that Woody had none of those great ideas. And, you know, Ralph was a brilliant editor. I learned a tremendous amount from watching films that he edited and from reading his book, but that was a mistake. Yeah, I mean, Jesus, you know, Sidney's there with a grease pencil in his hand. Uh, Sidney had his arm on the, on his hand on the moviola handbrake, um, which doesn't mean by the way, that Alan Heim didn't do the most brilliant of brilliant jobs on Network, or that Dee Dee didn't do the, one of the most brilliant of brilliant jobs on Dog Day Afternoon, a film I watch over and over again. They did, but again, it was a situation, you know, those were editing rooms where I don't think you could tell who's, who had what idea. And, and you know, you go back to Sydney's first feature film. You want a, you want a, a lesson in filmmaking. Make Sydney your teacher. That, and I and I don't even know him. I mean, I met Sydney. You know, one of the delightful things about working in the Brill Building in the '80s was everyone was cutting there except for Woody. And so you know, I'd I'd meet Sydney Lumet waiting for an elevator, and it was great. But it, you know, listen to some of the commentaries on on any of his films. And you could figure this out if you, if you set your mind to it, but you know, watch 12 Angry Men 
And this is his first film as a director, and or as a film director, and he talks about how in the course of the story, he, he used longer and longer lenses, so that by the end of the story, you've got this overwhelming sense of claustrophobia. Jeez, it's amazing. Or talking about the color schemes and the verdict. And so, you know, when Alan says that, I'm sure it's right. You know, maybe, maybe Fosse would be a better example. I mean, who had what idea on all that jazz? We'll never know, and, and rightly so. Um, and so, you know, hopefully that structure, which is consistent throughout Ghost World, somebody, somebody thought it out. I'll say Terry th thought that out. Uh, maybe it was Carol. I don't think it was me. Um, but yeah, in, the, in an ideally functioning cutting room, you don't even remember. And you never, I guess you never want to, to be able to say, I came up with this idea, that person did this, this person, because right. then it's not a flowing film almost, right? Yeah, it's true. I mean, because you're, you know, the, the most important thing is that you're making the same film, and it is the director's film that you're making. And, and you know, I read an interview once with Gordon Willis, and Gordon was saying that during pre-production, he would talk with the director about the philosophy behind the film, and that very often on set, in lighting or composing a shot, he would remind the director of that conversation about the philosophy. If he felt that a certain shot was breaking that philosophy, you know, and I don't, I never discussed it specifically, any in terms of specifics with him, and he didn't talk about any specific film. But I would imagine something like that would come up in the course of shooting The Godfather Part Two because the lighting design of that film was very risky. I mean, not lighting the actors' faces, a very risky thing. I'm sure it drove Paramount crazy. Um, and it might even have driven Francis crazy. But, you know, you go back to the basics where, you, where uh, you know, in an early conversation about the making of that film and the intent of that film and Francis's intent with that film, he wanted to make a film in which those central characters lived in a world of shadows. Well, Gordon wanted to light them in a world of shadows to convey that story. And that might be something where you'd have to remind the director, no, and, you know, we're telling this story. I mean, what's it gonna mean if suddenly Michael Corleone is standing in, you know, in full light or bright light? And I think that kind of thing also comes up in editing that over and over again, actually, like, we need to do this because this is the film we've been making. And, you know, that's why one might get a laugh out of a comedy. Um, if it took you into a different film, you know, a, a, a realistic urban comedy doesn't want necessarily a, a surrealist film. You wouldn't want a joke from a, a, a Marx Brothers movie, say, in a dialogue-driven Woody Allen film much as he adores the Marx Brothers, and, and sometimes his films do have that tone, but... I guess it's also like, like even Woody Allen's is so uh, unique in his humor when you, when you talk about like the Marx Brothers or, you know, he breaks the fourth wall, I believe, in Manhattan where he mm -hmm. says, oh, it's like this, and he's like, no, this is what it is, and he pulls the person in. Yeah, Marshall McCoy, a Canadian. Work. Yeah. <laughs> but it's true, I mean, one could call that Brechtian in a way, I suppose. Um, definitely breaks the fourth wall. You can't always do that. I mean, in Annie Hall, you could. He begins the film with a monologue to camera. But, you know, had that scene 
been in there as the only scene that breaks the fourth wall, I could I could see a compelling argument to take it out. Yeah. Now the strange thing about Woody Allen that we'll never know about that film, or we might learn if we had worked on it as Susan Morse did, is does Woody take a moment that might break the fourth wall and then shoot more scenes that break the fourth wall to justify it or you know, or were they already there? I'm sure they they were, because he's a brilliant writer, brilliant director. But yeah, I mean, it's an interesting it's an interesting example, though. Yeah, because it might not be appropriate in a film, and and very often something like that will come up, where in the middle of the film, for logistical reasons, a DP and a director might decide to shoot a handheld scene. Which, if it's going to, ref if it's meant to reflect a, a state, an emotional state that's unlike any other in the movie, maybe that's okay. But it is hard to introduce a technique late in a movie, once in a movie. And so that's the kind of thing again that, yeah, an, argue, uh, an editor might argue. You have to prepare the to, audience to take for it. Or yeah, to absolutely. There was a few scenes in Ghost World where the scene was allowed to just play in the, the wide shot. I was wondering uh, what was the reason behind this or what was the approach you guys took for this? Was it because it was only shot that way or was it? Probably sometimes, yes, that was it. And that, you know, I, I, that is a great aesthetic choice. It's a risky one because then you can only trim the beginning or the end uh, or make jump cuts. Um, but it's a, it's a wonderful choice. You know, was, I, I enjoyed this past weekend meeting um, Bobby Osteen, I, did you meet her? Yes. Um, and I had never, we'd never met before, even though Sam was an inspiration to me, but I, I knew someone who had assisted Sam and was very eager to please him and was standing there at the movieola with a roll of film and Sam said, what are you doing? He said, well, you know, in case you want to cut to the close-up and Sam said, what's wrong with this shot? And just let it play for two minutes and two and a half minutes and you know, that's, it's great when you can do that, or, and you do have to know when not to cut. And it's a funny thing, because it's great not to cut. I think so, often cutting becomes a necessity because pace of the master shot isn't quite there, or, or, or the staging doesn't focus your attention on what it should be, but that's more defensive editing, you know, and when you have a master that can play, I mean, I have a scene in the film I'm working on now where it's a fascinating kind of shot because it's an over-the-shoulder, so kind of from a character who's standing pretty far away from the character whose attention, who, who, upon whom attention is focused, but there's a mirror in the shot, and you can see the other character's facial reaction in the mirror, and there's no need to cut. There is coverage of her, but there's no need to use it because we see every reaction. And you shot too. Yeah. Well, that was part one of my interview with Michael Miller. Join me next week in New York for part two of my interview as well as for Edit Fest New York. I'd like to thank Jenny McCormick from the American Cinema Editors, Josh After from Manhattan Edit Workshop, Michael Miller, and of course my producer, Lauren Woodcock. I'm Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening.